We believe that all scripture is inspired. That is, it is breathed out or spoken by God through various individuals without error under the superintendence that is the leading and directing of the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 2 Peter 1.21 states, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now in the case of Genesis, the Holy Spirit superintendent, that is, guided, led, directed Moses in penning the first five books of the Bible. These five books are collectively known as the Law of Moses, the Torah, i.e. the teachings, or the Pentateuch. This collection of books itself claims Mosaic authorship. As well, the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament also confirm Mosaic authorship, including Jesus himself. Now, the book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. In the Hebrew, the book of Genesis is called Barashith, which is the first word of the text, beginning. Chapters 1 through 11 record the history of the beginnings of the world. Chapters 12 to 50 record the history of the beginning of God's chosen people, Israel. Now, the term Genesis comes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Genesis is the Greek translation of the Hebrew term toledot, meaning these are the generations of. A toledot is a family registry which records an individual's lineage and other historical events. And there are 11 of these toledots in Genesis. They are as follows. We have the toledot of the heaven and earth, Genesis 2, 4 to 4, 26. We have the toledot of Adam, Genesis 5, 1 to 6, 8. We have the Toledot of Noah, Genesis 6, 9 to 29. We have the Toledot of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Genesis 10, 1 to 11, 19. We have the Toledot of Shem, Genesis 11, 10 to 26. We have the Toledot of Terah, Genesis 11, 27 to 25, 11. We have the Toledot of Ishmael, Genesis 25, 12 to 18. We have the Toledot of Isaac, Genesis 25, 19 to 35, 29. We have the Toledot of Esau, Genesis 36, 1 to 8. We have another Toledot of Esau, Genesis 36, 9 to 37, 1. And we have the Toledot of Jacob, Genesis 37, 2 to Genesis 50, verse 26. Now, Moses' use of these Toledots, or family records, shows that the Genesis narrative is a historical record, not a myth. The book of Genesis is an accurate accounting of the past. To claim that science proves these records are not accurate is fallacious at best. Science studies the repeatable, while history studies the unrepeatable. Therefore, we cannot apply the scientific method to determine if Genesis is an accurate historical record. As a historical record, we must test Genesis by the historical method used to verify the validity of any other historical document. The historical method is composed of three basic tests. First, the internal test, which determines whether the document agrees or contradicts with itself. Second, the external test, determines whether other historical records can validate the document. Third, there's the bibliographical test, which examines the number of copies, the elapsed time between the original document and the copies, and the degree of accuracy between the copies. Now, the Bible, including Genesis, passes each of these tests. 
The Bible is historically accurate. The book of Genesis is historically accurate. The rest of the Old Testament accepts the book of Genesis, even the early chapters, as a historical account. Deuteronomy, Job, and 1 Chronicles each reference Adam as a historical figure. 1 Chronicles, Isaiah, and Ezekiel each reference Noah as a historical figure. Now, Jesus taught a historical Genesis, as did Paul and Peter. The New Testament directly quotes or refers to Genesis 165 times, 200 if counting duplicates. Of those 165 references, 100 come from Genesis 1 through 11. Every New Testament writer quotes from or refers to the early chapters of Genesis. Apostolic usage of Genesis 1 through 11 demonstrates the early church's acceptance of Genesis as a historical record. The book of Genesis is the most quoted and referenced book by the Bible itself. Friends, you cannot claim to be a Christian and reject the historicity of Genesis. To dismiss the historicity of Genesis is to reject the words of Jesus and the apostles. In fact, Jesus states that if you will not accept what Genesis says about creation, then you cannot accept what the Bible says about redemption. Jesus says in John 3.12, If I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus there was clear with Nicodemus. He could not grasp spiritual things. He could not grasp redemption, salvation, until he could grasp what Jesus said about earthly things, which includes creation. Jesus also gave a similar warning to the other religious leaders. In John 5, 46-47, he says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, of whom did Moses write? He wrote of Jesus. From Genesis through Deuteronomy, Jesus is imprinted in the text. Whether creation narratives or covenant text, whether the prophetic feast or the legalese of the law, it's all about Jesus. Jesus graphically illustrates this truth in the narrative of the rich man in hell. In Luke 16.31, Jesus, Jesus says that if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Friend, if you reject the writings of Moses, including Genesis, then you must ultimately reject the bodily resurrection of Jesus. How someone views the book of Genesis, how you view the book of Genesis, will determine how you view the whole of Scripture. Now, the book of Genesis is also a doctrinal treatise. Scripture states that there are three types of doctrine. There is the doctrine of men, Colossians 2.22. There's the doctrines of devils, 1 Timothy 4.1. And there's the doctrines of God, 1 Timothy 1.10, 2 Timothy 4.3, Titus 1.9 and 2.1. Now, while we refer to the doctrines of God as biblical doctrines, some doctrines refer to something taught, but biblical doctrine refers to what the Bible teaches. Genesis provides us with the foundation for many biblical doctrines, including creation, marriage, family, sin, judgment, grace, salvation, promise, and faith. Of all the doctrines set forth in Genesis, none is more important than the doctrine of God himself, which we call theology proper. From the beginning, God has chosen to reveal himself to us through his word in order that we may know him. 
Now, why is it important to know God? Let me give you a few reasons. First, knowing God provides the foundation for you and me as sinners to enter into eternal life. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, without a knowledge of God, you cannot understand the whole of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. Second, why is it important to know God? Because knowing God leads to godliness. By knowing God, we can begin to learn what is good, and we can desire what is good. The prophet in Jeremiah said, chapter 9, 23 to 24, Thus says the Lord, Yet let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things declares the Lord. So, we have a second reason. Knowing God leads to godliness. Our first reason, knowing God provides the foundation for a sinner to enter into eternal life. And the third reason as to why it's important to know God. Number three, knowing God strengthens believers. Daniel 11.32, By smooth words he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly towards the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Again, Daniel eleven thirty two. The weak-mindedness and the spiritual malaise that has engulfed believers and churches today are directly tied to a lack of knowing who God is and what He has done. I ask you this question, are you weak-minded? Are you suffering from a spiritual malaise? If you lack a desire for the things of God, if you lack a desire to go deeper into the things of God, then you're weak-minded. You are suffering from spiritual malaise because you have allowed your mind to be conformed to the spirit of this age. And I am afraid that if I ask you to tell me who is God, if I ask you to tell me what is God like, if I ask you to tell me what has God done, many of you would likely vacillate between so-called Christian cliches and emotional sentimentalities. Yet here in Genesis, beginning in the first chapter, God confronts us with the revelation of who he is and what he has done. Genesis 1 reveals to us that in the beginning, God. God what? Well, let's see. Number one, in the beginning, God is eternal. Genesis 1.1 states, in the beginning, God. The Hebrew term barasheth, or beginning, refers to an absolute beginning. In the beginning relates to the absolute beginning of all things. All thing includes time, space, matter. In other words, at the beginning of time and space and matter, God was already existing. God was already existing, and we call that eternality. Eternality means that God has no beginning or end. Deuteronomy 32, 40, Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, As I live forever. Psalm 102 and verse 27, But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Since God is without beginning or end, He is free from the succession of time. 1 Corinthians 2.7 says, We speak of God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Now that term ages in 1 Corinthians 2.7 
comes from the Greek term aeon, or eon, which refers to the existence of time. Paul states here that God's wisdom was decreed before the existence of time. Now, if God's wisdom existed before the existence of time, then God himself must also exist before time. God's eternality extends beyond time. As Psalm 90 verse 2 declares, he is infinite. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Again, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. That demonstrates that there is no distinction in time for God. The past, the present, the future are all equally current realities to him. Now, God not only existed before time, he exists before all of space. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 1, 4. Now, that word foundation, katabole, refers to the process of conception. The word cosmos, or the word cosmos, world here, refers to the universe. Thus, the foundations of the world relates to the method of the universe's conception. Before the universe was conceived, God chose to make believers holy and blameless. And furthermore, God existed before all matter. Psalm 90 and verse 2. Before the mountains were born, where you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, in Scripture, the mountains are one of the most ancient parts of the inhabitable creation. Deuteronomy 33, 15 calls the mountains ancient, with the best things of the ancient mountains and with the choice things of the everlasting hills. Now, the idea is that the mountains would have been the first part of the land that emerged out of the sea. The mood of the verb brought forth, yalad, means to be born. So the phrase, before the mountains were brought forth, is a Hebrew mechanism for expressing the idea before the earth was born. In other words, before the earth, before matter came into existence, God was. You see, God's eternality means that he exists before time, space, and matter. As well, he is not dependent upon time. He is not dependent upon space. He's not dependent upon matter. No, God is beyond time, beyond space, and beyond matter. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, reveals the eternal God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, reveals to us that God is self-existent. God is not only eternal, God is self-existent. Now, a being without beginning or end is what we call uncaused. In other words, nothing created God. God simply exists. Again, Genesis 1.1 states, in the beginning, God. God's existence is stated here as a self-evident truth. Unlike the pagan cosmologies, Scripture provides no origin tale for God. And this lack of a record is meant to support the truth of God's self-existence. Self-existence, what does that mean? It means that God is the source of his own existence. God is independent of anything and anyone else. He is the source of his own life. John 5, 26, Jesus says, As the Father has life in himself. To deny that God is self-existent is to deny the clear teaching of Scripture. Furthermore, a God that is not self-existent is no God at all. And such a denial makes you a fool. The fool says in his heart there is no God, Psalm 14.1. And the person who says there is no God is corrupt, commits abominable deeds, and there's no one who does good. Everything in the created realm 
you, me, whoever, whatever, is dependent on something else. We call this dependency causation. Now, the law of causation states that everything that exists in the world must have an adequate cause. And if this is so, the universe must also have an adequate cause. That is a cause which is indefinitely great. In other words, nothing happens without being caused. Also, the law of causation states everything which has a beginning has a cause. Now, does the law of causation undermine the reality of God's self-existence? No, it does not. First of all, we need to note here that the law of causation has limitation. It is limited to those things that have a beginning. Yet Psalm 90 verse 2 declares, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God has no beginning. Also, the phrase in the, in the law of causation, the phrase, everything which exists in the world, the universe must also have an adequate cause. Notice causation is limited to what? The created realm. Since God is eternal, he exists outside the created realm. He's not beholden to the law of causation. Second, the law of causation not only has limitations, but it requires that everything which exists have an indefinitely greater cause. What does that mean? It means that something larger in the universe must exist, which in turn created the universe. The scripture states, God created. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning God created what? The heavens and the earth. If that phrase, heavens and the earth, is a Hebraic figure of speech referring to the universe. So the law of causation has limitations. The law of causation refers only to the created realm. And the law of causation necessitates the need for a lawgiver. The scripture states in Hebrews 3.4, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. In other words, the law of causation is a God-ordained law. The one who builds all things is none other than God. Not that is, God is the only cause, and there are no others. Isaiah 41.4, who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am he. Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. And Isaiah 46, 9, Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Genesis 1.1 reveals that in the beginning, the eternal God is self-sufficient. Who do you say God is? Friend, if you deny God's eternality, if you deny God's self-sufficiency, you have denied God himself. Let's go on to see that Genesis 1.1 also reveals that in the beginning, God is a triunity. Notice in Genesis 1.1, God created now, the name God translates the Hebrew title Elohim. Elohim is the plural form of El. Now, the usage of this plural noun Elohim in the statement is unique because it is joined to a singular verb, bara, created. Grammatically, there should be noun and verbal agreement. That is, singular nouns with singular verbs, plural nouns with plural verbs. However, by placing a plural noun with a singular verb, it establishes the uniplurality of God. Uniplurality means there is a plurality within the Godhead. But this plurality acts like one. 
This is what we see in Genesis 1.26. Then God said what? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now there in Genesis 1.26, again we have God, Elohim, in the plural. And the verb said is singular. Note what God said. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Us and our are plural pronouns. Yet image and likeness are singular nouns. Us and our shows communication between persons. And before any one of you think that God is speaking to the angels, the singular usage of image and likeness demonstrates that these individuals who are speaking share in the same essence. Angels are created beings and do not share in God's essence. The uniplurality of God is underscored in the revelation of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord Yahweh is our God and the Lord Yahweh is one. Now the name Lord Yahweh is singular, while the title God, Elohim, is plural. When the term one, Achad, is, joined to, or is used to join two objects, in this case Yahweh and Elohim, it shows plurality within a oneness. So we have a uniplurality or a oneness that's plural within the Godhead. Consider Genesis 3.22. Genesis 3.22 Then the Lord God said, Behold, this man became like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Genesis 11.6-7 The Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have the same language, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech. Now again, in Genesis 3.22, the Lord is speaking and says that man has become like one of us. In Genesis 11.6 and 7, the Lord again is speaking, Yahweh is speaking, and he says, let us go down. Now, who are or what are the identities of these persons? And how many persons make up this Godhead? Well, let's go to Psalm 33 and verse 6. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the breath of his mouth all their host. Now right there in Psalm 33 and verse 6, we see there are three. The Lord, Yahweh, the word, and the breath. Now the term Lord, Yahweh, is the only personal name of Elohim used in Scripture. This name is never used of any pagan gods or other people in the Scriptures. It is derived from the Hebrew verb meaning to be or to exist. Hence, Yahweh implies the one who is or the one who exists. Now, the word, the word of Yahweh, is none other than Jesus, the Son of God. John 1, 1 to 3 declares that in the beginning, same beginning we have here in Genesis, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Colossians 1.16. For by him, that's Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Hebrews 1, six, 
In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Again, we see here in each of these passages that the Word is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that he was there at creation. Now, again, Psalm 33, verse 6, The Word, Jesus, of the Lord, the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth, all their host. The term spirit in the Hebrew, roch, can also be translated as breath. The breath of his mouth is none other than the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1-2, the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, was moving over the surface of the waters. Job 26-13 declares by his breath, by the Spirit, the heavens are cleared. Job 33 and verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty has given me life. Now the book of Job is very much poetic. And Hebrew poetry is known for many things, but one in particular is parallelism. Parallelism is used to show equality. And so in Job 33 and verse 4, the phrase the Spirit of God is parallel to the phrase the breath of the Almighty. This shows that the Spirit of God and the breath of God are equal or the same. So the Spirit of God, the breath of God are, are the same being. Now, if we took that over to the New Testament for a second, the term ruach in Hebrew and pneuma in Greek translate the same word, spirit or breath. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now the word inspiration is theonoustos, or literally, God breathed. Yet 2 Peter 1.21 confirms that the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the hagias pneuma, is the inspiration of scripture. Okay, what do we see there? God breathed the scriptures house through the spirit. In Joel 2.28, it prophesies that God will pour out my spirit, my ruach, my breath. That prophecy was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when God poured out his spirit, his breath, his pneuma on believers there in Acts 2, 2-4. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, reveals the eternal, self-sufficient God to be uniplural or to be a triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, do you believe that God is one, but three persons? Friend, if you think that God existed as the Father, but later existed as the Son, and later exists today as the Holy Spirit, then you believe in something called modalism. And modalism is a denial of the Scripture. God exists at all times as three beings. He's always the Father, He's always the Son, He's always the Spirit. And yet the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son. Each one, though they share the same essence, each one is their own person. Continuing along with our theme of who God is, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God is creator. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. From the opening statement of scripture, God reveals himself as creator. It is this very revelation of God which evolutionists seek to rid themselves. Herbert Spencer one of the originators of the theory of evolution, vehemently denied God as the source of creation. In his book, First Principles, he argues that five things are necessary for creation. You need time, you need force, you need action, you need space, and you need matter. 
Now, here's an excellent example of God using the mysteries of creation to disgrace the philosophers of the world. While Mr. Spencer sought to undermine the validity of creation theology, he unwittingly underscored the very truth of creation theology as revealed in Genesis 1.1. God says, in the beginning, that's time. God, that's force. Created, that's action. The heavens, that's space. And earth, that's matter. God is the force. He is the energy which performs the creating action. Genesis 1, 3, 1, 6, 1, 9, 1, 11, 1, 14, 1, 120, 124, 126. And God said. That's action. Psalm 33, 6. The word of the Lord made the heavens, the breath of his mouth, all their host. Now we've got a law called the first law of thermodynamics. First law of thermodynamics states that energy can be transformed but not created or destroyed. In other words, energy cannot be created from nothing. It has to be transferred from another source. Now we have previously set forth here that God is eternal and God is self-sufficient. Therefore, God is uncaused. He is the first cause in creation. So when we ask where did the energy in the universe originate, it originated from God. See, that's a major problem when people say, well, you know, there, 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 things just boom, and there was. Well, where did that energy come from? Energy cannot be created. It has to be transferred. So the energy in the universe originated from God. When? On the first day of creation, God said what? Let there be light, and there was light, Genesis 1-4. What is light? Light's energy. It's one form of electric magnetic energy to be exact. And so when God said, let there be light, God did not create light or energy. He transferred it from his own essence. The Apostle John says in 1 John 1, 5, God is light. Again, Genesis 1, 3 states, and God said. That verb said, hamar, is in the justive mood, meaning that God didn't simply speak creation into existence. He commanded it. Psalm 33, 9, he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Psalm 148, 2-5, praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. Praise him sun and moon. Praise him all stars of light. Praise him highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? For he commanded and they were created. God created by command. We call this divine fiat. Ex verbum Deo. And furthermore, what he commanded into existence was not made from any previously existing matter. Hebrews 11.3, we understand by faith that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now, the Hebrew term bara, translated as created in Genesis 1.1, is very important here because bara means to produce something which never existed before. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the universe. The universe never existed before. Now, what did God command into existence? God commanded all things. Time, space, matter. Now, time, space, and matter are not eternal. Einstein's theory of general relativity demonstrates that time cannot exist independent of, of, of matter and energy. You have to have space and matter for time to exist. Second, the second law of thermodynamics states that the amount of energy in the universe is running out. 
Now, time cannot exist independent of matter and energy, and the amount of energy in the universe is running out, which means that time and matter are running out as well. If time, if matter, if energy are all running out, that means they're going to come to an end. And if the universe is losing time, matter, and energy, it too is going to come to an end. And if these have things have an end, then they had to also have a what? A beginning. And because they have an end and beginning, they're not eternal. Time, space, matter, not eternal. Creation had a beginning, and the scripture testifies it will have an end. Now, Genesis 1.1, the word beginning, barashith, refers to an absolute beginning. You see, the translators of the Septuagint understood this. When they translated the term, the Hebrew term barashith as in Greek, an archaic which refers to an absolute beginning. Therefore, in the absolute beginning, time, space, matter, energy were formed. The universe had an absolute beginning. Time's beginning is established on the very first day of creation. Genesis 1-5, God called the light day, the darkness he called night, and evening and morning one day. Isaiah 45 and verse 7 says, The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being, creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, the word day, the Hebrew term translated as day, is yom. Yom refers to a literal 24-hour cycle. During the first 24-hour cycle of creation, God separated the darkness and the light into evening and morning. This 24-hour cycle, divided between evening and morning, continued throughout the next five days and continues even into the present. Furthermore, the Son of God was the agent through whom God commanded time's creation. Hebrews 1, 2. In in these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son, through whom also He made the world. We understand by faith the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, by Jesus. Hebrews 11, 3. Now that term world, we understand that he made the world, the worlds were prepared, is the Greek term aeon, or eon, which refers to time. This term is used two other times in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 6, 5 and 9, 26. In both instances, the term eon, or aeon, is translated as time. Thus, the term world should be understood there as referencing time. So let's go back and reread Hebrews 1, 2. God in these last days has spoken to us in in his Son, through whom he made time. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that time was prepared before the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now along with time, God created space and matter. Isaiah 42 and verse 5, Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. Isaiah 45 and verse 18, Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, there is none else. All things, whether they're visible or invisible to our eyes, within the realm of space and matter, are all created by God. Psalm 95, 4 and 5, In whose hands are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he it is who made it. The hands form the, his hands form the dry land. 
Psalm 145, 5-6, Oh, the glorious splendor of your majesty, and your wonderful works I will meditate on. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. Jonah 1, verse 9, Jonah said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Acts 17, 24-25, The God who made the world and all things in it, He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He gives to all people life and breath and all things. Again, Colossians 1.16. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So in the beginning, Genesis 1.1 reveals the eternal, self-sufficient, triune God is none other than the creator of the universe. But Genesis 1.1 also reveals to us one other important truth. That is, God is all-powerful and all-present. God is all-powerful and all-present. Again, Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We've stated that everything in the created realm is caused and has a beginning. Now, that requires mass energy. Now, God's essence, we said, is light or energy, 1 John 1.5. And so when God created the universe, the mass energy needed to create came from Him. And since power is the amount of energy used per unit of time, the very act of creation was a display of power. Jeremiah 10, 12 to 13. It is he who made the earth by his power. He established the world by his wisdom. By his understanding, he stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heaven. And he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Again, the prophet Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth. By what? Your great power. Nothing's too difficult for you. You see, God's power is so great that he needs no other being. He needs no other thing to help him create. Psalm 65, 5, by awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You are the trust of all the earth and of the farthest sea. Isaiah 44, 24, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, and the Maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. You see, God's power not only brought all things into being, it is the same power that also sustains us. Hebrews 1, 3, Jesus is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds, he sustains all things by the word of what? His power. When he made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, God is all-powerful, and he can do whatsoever he wills as it conforms to his perfect nature. Our God is in the heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3 Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they exist and were created. Revelation 4.11 So if you ask, or someone asks you, can God create a stone so large he could not lift it? I want you to understand that question is, Ill, is not only illegitimate, it is not only ridiculous, it is not only stupid, it is blasphemous, believer. The Creator God has authority over his creatures and limits the power and abilities that he gives to us. But God, however, is above his creation. He is not a part of creation, and therefore he can exercise full authority and power. So let's stop asking stupid questions about God that are nothing more than blasphemous. 
God can do as He pleases. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He's also omnipresent. That is, God is everywhere at once. Now, when we talk about space and time, there are limitations placed upon created objects. I, you, us, everybody can only occupy one space at a given time. But because God is eternal, not bound by time, because he is self-sufficient, not bound by limitation, because he is creator, he is not bound by space, he can be present to the entirety of creation and its various parts at all times. My friends, creation reveals God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature, according to Romans 1.20. Fallen humanity ought to be able to look at creation and arrive at a logical conclusion that at the very least there is an intelligent designer behind it. And that you and I as believers, as we look at creation, we should see the personal God who created all things by the word of his mouth, and we ought to submit to him. Do you submit to him? Do you see him as your creator? Not just your redeemer, but your creator? Do you see his power? Does that cause you to worship him? Sadly, Satan has deceived the masses with the theory of evolution. If all of creation is the result of evolution, then there's no God to submit to and no need to repent of sin. But friends, we know differently because we have a historical, accurate historical record called Scripture that tells us in the beginning God created. Friend, if you're looking at creation, if you take a moment and see the sun, the moon, the stars, the sky, the birds, the air, the animals of the fields, the, the fish of the oceans, if you just take a moment look around at creation, and you dismiss the knowledge of God, it is going to be to your demise. Listen to the words of Romans 1, 20-32. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that we, our people, are without excuse. For even though we knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile, futile in their speculations. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. And therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also, men abandoned the natural function of a woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossiping, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they did not know the ordinance of God, those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them.
You see what we, we, we see several things here, number one. In fact, we, we, we see six things here. Number one, people will rationalize their sin. Two, people devise their own philosophy, philosophies about God and creation. Third, they replace the worship of God with the worship of creatures, even the maroon selves. Four, God gives them over to their uncleanness and vile passions. That's sexual immorality. Number five, as a result of their uncleanness and vileness, God passes judgment on them. And finally, they receive the punishment due to their sin. Romans 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's foolish to reject God and believe a lie. If you say there's no God, that's exactly what you're doing. You're dismissing the creation account of Genesis 1, which begins with, in the beginning God created Scripture warns you, believer, beware of empty philosophies. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the teachings of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. And that's exactly what evolution is. Foolishness, because it rejects God. Because it rejects God, it can't can't be anything more than empty philosophy. And friend, you cannot claim to be a Christian and reject the historicity of Genesis. Jesus says if you don't accept what Genesis says about creation, you will not accept what the Bible says about redemption. According to the testimony of the angels of heaven in Revelation 4.11 and 5.13, all things are created, not evolved. You know, during the tribulation, there's going to be two witnesses. And there's going to be the 144,000 proclaiming the gospel. There is another witness, an angel flying in the midheaven. Proclaiming the gospel, Revelation 14, 6. I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. What is that message of the gospel? Revelation 14, 7. Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and the springs of waters. Now the good news is people can fear God and worship Him. That's the ultimate goal of salvation, to produce an individual who fears God and worships Him. Sinners can be redeemed and given the capacity to know God through the forgiveness of sin. And the age-old gospel, that eternal gospel, is the Creator has become the Redeemer. I said before, I'll say it again, the weak-mindedness and spiritual malaise in golfing believers and churches today is directly tied to a lack of knowing who God is and what He has done. And therefore, that is a result of never truly repenting of sin. That is the result of never receiving Jesus the Creator as Lord and Savior. And so, friend, examine yourself. If you lack a desire for the things of God, if you don't have a desire to go deeper into the things of God, then you are weak-minded. You are suffering from a spiritual malaise, which you have allowed your mind to be conformed to the spirit of this age. I challenge you, do not vacillate. Don't don't, don't rely on your Christian cliches and your emotional sentimentalities. Repent, fear God, and worship Him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, God in heaven, we come to you through Jesus Christ the spotless lamb, the lamb that was slain for our sin. And Father, we give you all the praise and all the glory. You are our creator. You are our redeemer. And so, Father, we worship you. Father, we confess that we need help. 
Because, Lord, too often we are weak-minded. Too often we, we've been an, an enveloped into a spiritual malaise. Because, Father, we just don't have that desire. And so, Lord, I pray that you would renew that desire within us. Arouse us from our spiritual malaise. Arouse us from this spiritual laziness. And get us back on track. Father, forgive us. Forgive us when we don't strive to know you. Forgive us when we don't take a moment and look at creation and think, oh, that's beautiful, and stop there. Forgive us, Father, when we don't worship you, when we see the beauty of creation. Father, forgive us for not seeing you as the eternal, self-sufficient, triune, all-powerful, everywhere-present God. Lord, you're not the God of myth. You're not the God of imagination. You're the real, living, true God. And so, Father, may we reverence you. Lord, as we go forth, we pray that we would go forth rejoicing because we've met our Creator. And his name is Yahweh. We know a little bit more about our creator. And we also know that he's our redeemer. Father, I ask that you would get all the praise and all the glory, both now and forever. Amen.